0: Not a lot of reflective surfaces down on the side, <laughs>
1: huh?
0: <laughs> Still, could be worse. My nose could be gushing blood. <laughs> Your nose could be. What do you
1: Back to work.
0: Let's
1: make a mayor.
0: It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy.
1: Hello, and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host Gareth Green, and joining me, as always, is my full-time co-host and part-time caped crusader, Andrew Raphael. Jingle bells, Batman smells. Robin flew away. (laughs) I thought it was Robin Ladenek. Well, the Batmobile lost its wheel, and the Joker got away.
0: Hey, I think there's many variants. What mine had uh, M6 motorway in it as well. So,
1: oh right, oh fair enough. Because
0: Jess said, "Oh, Robin Ladenek," and I was like, "I've never heard of that one." Not where I was from. Really? It was always Robin flew away, which makes more sense. Your way is the wrong way. (laughs) So,
1: (laughs) why is Robin laying an egg? I don't get it. He's a bird. He's a Robin. Anyway. And today we're looking at the brief rise and fall of a grotesque political leader whose archaic and repugnant view on society and women nearly caused the destruction of his populace. Also, he has weird hands and hair. But that's enough about Donald Trump. Christ, I hope that's the last time I ever have to say that. As we're watching Batman Returns. But first, roll the trailer.
0: I've been down here too long. It's time for me to ascend. From the sewers of Gotham, a new villain emerges. You didn't invite me, so I crashed! From the rooftops of Gotham, the perfect enemy comes to life. I am Catwoman. Hear me roar. Yeah. yeah. And the only one who can save this city.
1: of the night. Hey, stud. We had something together. From the creative mind that brought us Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Planet of the Apes comes Batman Returns, a pack to the wall sequel to the 1989 Caped Crusader classic. Michael Keaton is back as Sir not appearing in this movie, (laughs) while Danny DeVito, Christopher Walker, Michelle Pfeiffer, and a kitchen sink are brought in for villain duties. So, Andy... Batman Returns are the first of our Christmas specials. Yep. yep. I've got to say, this is the one that I nominated, really, for our Christmas episode. And it's one that I really wanted to talk about. I watched it recently. These are the Batman films that we grew up with. Yeah. As being kids in the 90s, these were the Batman films that everybody on the school ground were talking about. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to get back to them. I wanted to to go back to this Tim Burton beginning of the series. Well, it's not really the beginning of the series, (laughs) but... This is where the view of Batman in today's modern culture, this is where it started in cinema for pretty much all of us, really. Yeah, yeah. So I I wanted to get to this. And and I will say, Andy, do you have like a similar background with this series? Is this one that you grew up with as well? Oh, yeah, definitely. Although I would say this film is probably the one
0: that I watched the least as a kid. Yeah. I'm not even going to say because it scared me. I think it was the one that I found interesting, but for me as a kid, it didn't appeal as much as Mm. the others around it. Even Actually, no, I'm not going to say Batman and Robin because that was a bit later, but I think at the time, my two favourite Batman films as a kid were the original Batman and Batman Forever. Adam West. No. No, the the, the 1989 Batman and Batman Forever. Um, Yeah. And obviously, as time goes on, my opinion changes drastically around Batman Forever. But uh yeah, this one was the one in the middle. And uh I do recall it. You know, I recall the poster, which is a very distinctive poster, especially for a photographic poster. And I just remember it being on the billboards at the cinemas. Just to confirm, are we talking
1: about the, the three-head Yeah, billboard? the three-head one. Because yeah. that, that is one that is, like, seared in yeah. that's that's my nice, memory. It, I remember it being around. Yeah, I, I'd say for... For a
0: photographic poster, which have generally always been recognised as being inferior to, you know, graphics yes. and things, yeah, um, that is a particularly
1: effective one and has sort of become iconic. I think. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you actually in regards to the, like, going back to the time that these films came out many, many moons ago. Yeah. I th- I think actually Batman Forever was the first film that I saw at the cinema with regards to this particular series. I think it's the only of the first of these four films, it's the only one that I actually saw at the cinema, come to think about it. And I loved Batman Forever when it first came out. I'm I, I make no bones about it. My opinion may have changed in yeah. a year since, but when that first came out, American Express Batman card and everything, I loved it.
0: Yeah, I mean to be honest, I think when we go into the production of this film and the aftermath of the film and what Batman Forever represents I think the effect of that third film did what the studio wanted yeah. in the end which this film couldn't deliver. Yes. It didn't really have much in much intention of delivering on that which is why, you know, as kids we are much more inclined to like a film like Batman Forever even mm-hmm. though now when you look at it it's uh you know it's not a particularly great film or anything.
1: No. I do think, I honestly do think, though, these things are cyclical. They always come round. And I have noticed a growing cult fan base for Batman Forever start to resurface again. It started high. I remember it was fondly regarded by kids of our age during the 90s. And was it was everywhere. Everywhere. And then it dropped in terms of stature. And it it became derided. But now I've noticed a slight increase again. Like I've noticed the articles online where it's in defense of Batman Forever. Given that it's a Joel Schumacher film and obviously he passed. Was it this year or last year? Oh, God. I feel like 2020 has lasted for about 16 years. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, and given that Joel Schumacher has passed recently, it has caused people to go back and revisit his films and and especially looking at them through that kind of, like, queer lens that he always provided. And I think that there is some merit to forever even if Mm. it is just the the odd glimpse here and there whereas there is nothing to batman and robin but yeah (laughs) batman forever was everywhere
0: yeah you could not get away from it like the toys and i think in a way like yeah the studio got their wish of having that balance to be honest batman forever i think was the start of superhero franchise Getting their target audience right and and being in harmony with all the merchandise. Yeah, yeah. Because I think prior to that, with the um, with the earlier Tim Burton Batman films, there was always a, a a great unease between the franchise side
1: of it and the artistic side of it. Yeah,
0: which we'll go into in a bit whilst we talk about this film.
1: Tim Burton making a film for Happy Meal toys. Yeah, doesn't feel like it works in my mind. No, <laughs> you know. So I think I think that's what joel schumacher brought to the table when in regards to what the studio mm. wanted it was like suddenly something that could be packaged up much easier yeah i mean especially tim burton of this
0: time which i would definitely say this is the best tim burton it's concentrated burton rather than <laughs> diluted burton
1: i honestly think that there are two distinct tim burtons it's a tim burton of now and a tim burton of then and the tim burton of them was a, a force to be reckoned with in my yeah. opinion he, it's weird that i think now he does make some very safe studio pictures that i don't understand what it is that appeals to him other than perhaps you know it's the, a bit of a safety net i guess the main one i don't get is dumbo i don't get no. dumbo no. i don't get charlie and the chocolate factory <laughs> i mean to be honest i think even is more tim burtony
0: films like Dark Shadows and things like that it feels like a a pale imitation Mm. it still feels like someone's tried to make a film in that vein I don't know there's something that's that's missing a spark yeah and I feel like I mean he's had his moments but I mean everything ever since sort of like I think Mars Attacks yeah I think the failure of Mars Attacks because even like films like Sleepy Hollow and, and Big Fish, there's, there's still something missing there.
1: I really like Sleepy Hollow. I think that's a really good film. And I like Big Fish. There's nothing Tim Burton about it, but I feel like it's been an exercise of Tim Burton making a film that doesn't have any of his eccentricities, essentially, mm. and he's tried to make something completely mm. different. But I do agree that, as a result, it's it does feel a little bit like Neutered Burton. <laughs> yeah, and when
0: you start getting into like Planet of the Apes and Charlie yeah. and the Chocolate Factory and even sweeney todd i'm just mm-hmm. like to be honest for me they have far too much helena bonham carter and i'm I'm not a helena bonham carter fan she fits in like tim burton's world mm-hmm. but it's so um obvious
1: i don't know there's something about it i don't i don't like it breaks the immersion to be yeah. honest it, it's like to be honest i have the same issue with johnny depp in these films yeah, as yeah, well yeah. Uh, which is this is the Johnny Depp role, and that's yeah. the Helena Bonham Carter role, yeah. and you know what? That like if you if you say that. It's a Tim Burton film with a Johnny Depp role and a Helena Bonham Carter role. You know already what characters those people are playing. And that's all you need. Yeah. You don't need to know what the film's about. You don't need to know the title. You just need to know who's involved, and you already know who the characters are. And it's like it's become pigeonholed in that way that I think everybody just got sick and tired of seeing those actors playing those type of characters in this type of film by Tim
0: Burton. In a way, like boiling it down to it, Tim Burton just became more of the same. Yes. Uh, whereas the the Tim Burton that we're going to discuss here was incredibly dynamic, bouncing from film to film. Yes. If you think of that run that he had from Pee Wee's Big Adventure all the way up
1: until, I would say, Ed Wood. Yeah. That's a great bunch of films. There's not a dud among them. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And to be honest, I mean, I know I just mentioned it before, but this is always one that I hold firmly to my heart and one that I'm sure we will discuss on the podcast in the years to come but um mars attacks for me as well i i really have a fondness (laughs) for mars attacks yeah that's one that i would like to go back to on the show yeah i love like edward
0: scissorhands and uh, i mean edward as well is is... edward's perfect edward is just pure perfection and it's definitely the best johnny depp performance in tim burton films i mean he's good in edward scissorhands but he's even better in edward
1: i do think johnny depp's Career does have some rather solid performances, but I do think edward is perhaps his best performance, not just in Tim Burton as a filmography, but also just in Johnny Depp's as well. Yeah. I think that is one yeah. of his greatest performances. Yeah. But yes, moving back to uh, Batman Returns, that's us uh, let's before yeah. we discuss ourselves out out of the film, yeah. uh, let's go back to the context. Let's bring ourselves all the way back to when. Batman Returns was made. And really, to begin that story, I guess we have to begin with 1989's Batman. The yeah. the first of this series. Mm-hmm. The Jack Nicholson starring... I mean, that's what everybody knows these films for. This is something that's always levelled at these films that... Oh, well, they're not really about Batman. They're more about the villains. I don't know why I put on that voice, but... <laughs> that's a critique that's always levelled at these films. But speaking about Batman specifically for a moment, I think that that's the only film in this series that is actually about batman yeah <laughs> but jack nicholson so outshined everybody else in that film as the villain yeah that every single film since became villain focused yeah yeah batman is about batman it's about the origins of batman told through the lens of well it's it's him facing his past his fear the thing that made him become batman and that is the joker in in this version of events but because Jack Nicholson so chewed up that that role in that entire film, everything since was well, what are we gonna do for the villain? How are we gonna top that? And that's how I think these films became, yeah more increasingly villain-centric as the series went on
0: yeah and i I think it started that way as well like even down to the billing as well where you have like jack nicholson billed above michael keaton in the original film and then you get to the point where in the last of the initial batman film series again you have arnold schwarzenegger being billed above george (laughs) clooney as batman it's going to be a cold winter oh man i don't know how do we get from (laughs) there to there i oh damn it, it is a leap and a jump it really is it's like yeah again it's like going from golden eye to die another day like we were talking about the other week it's one of those it really is because <laughs> yeah even batman forever you can sort of just about pigeonhole it in being in the same series but there is a clear split between the two burton films and the two schumacher films yeah. almost like mini series within this bigger series it's strange talking about batman as a uh because the, the first Batman is the instigator of everything that's come since, but when you look into its its making of, yeah, it's so heavily tied to the original Superman, yeah. Because when they were developing Batman throughout the eighties, they involved a lot of the same people that were responsible for that first Superman movie uh, to try mm. and repeat the formula, uh, and obviously over time it, it became more of its own thing but you you know initially you did have people like tom mankovitz come in to you know write the screenplay for the original batman so there are clear ties and it's strange when you think about it there was only 11 years in between superman the movie and the 1989 Batman. They feel so
1: remarkably divorced from each oh, yeah. other in terms yeah. of the style of each film, yeah. and in terms of uh, what they do with the characters. But yeah, they are intrinsically linked. Yeah, you know It makes me think, like watching the documentary and seeing them go into detail about these type of connections, it, and and also thinking about what happened with Tim Burton's Superman. But I remember a time when you would hear about a certain type of film being made for years, and it would always be up in air whether or not it would be made. Like Superman, that is one that I remember hearing about for years and years and years, the Nicolas Cage one, and that went to other people. These type of uh, development hell ones where they're, they're trying so desperately to get it right. Whereas yeah. now, I don't think that happens anymore. Nope. I think... <laughs> studios are just they'll just throw it out there and if it works it works if not we'll recast it next year yeah you know you know it's like like i think i mean what is this we've got like i mean if you count lego batman in the past like five years we've had three different batmans yeah i mean the
0: days of big tentpole superhero films being stuck in development hell or Mm -hmm. You know, huge rumblings of who's going to be involved and all that kind of stuff. Just gone now because they announced the film before they've even started developing it. Like, they have a title. The marketing starts then. I even remember, like, announcing something like Thor Ragnarok. Yes. Now, I'm pretty sure that when they announced that film with the title Thor Ragnarok, there was no script or anything. Mm -hmm. Like, they just had the title. And that seems to be what happens these days. So they have to, like... everything around that title and the schedule yeah whereas yeah doing
1: something like Tim Burton Superman is that's all gone and even thinking about like um Taika Waititi's involvement in Star Wars so these these things get announced so far in advance now it's like in three films time this director is going to be making a Star Wars film, so mark this in your calendar for 2028. Yeah, you know, <laughs> so it's like it begins. The marketing now begins from day dot the moment that somebody walks into a studio conference room and says, "You know what? We should make another Alien film." That's the date that they put the announcement out. It's
0: that's how yeah. it feels I mean, now. It, it's 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 definitely much a much more streamlined business now. Oh yeah, definitely. Which is in stark contrast to these earlier Batman films because you you get the sense that there is no ambition for continuity or or anything like that. They're They're dealing with things a film at a time. In a
1: way they're kind of living dangerously though within this time with these type of films because every film lives or dies. The whole franchise lives and and dies by the success of a singular film each time. It's not about how the franchise performs as a whole and oh well this film can kind of you know, it can it can live off the shoulders of this other film. Yeah. You know, like how, for example, the Marvel films carried the Incredible Hulk, and other films that underperformed, like Thor Two, that type of thing. Yeah. Back then, if Batman Returns had bombed, this series would have just gone into hibernation. Yeah. <laughs> for yeah. some time. Yeah.
0: I mean, the silver lining of that is that these films are able to stand on their own much better.
1: I one hundred percent agree i can see though from a studio perspective why they embrace the the newer model of filmmaking rather than the older one yeah because to them it's a much safer bet whereas yeah. for the audiences it just means that we do get more of the same but it's a it's a more of a consistency yeah but yes uh, going back to batman returns again um so batman comes out it is a huge success at the time i mean 1989 it came out i was born in 86 but Batman is a film that also I remember being everywhere. I don't remember it coming out, but I remember the years since. I remember Batman Returns coming out, but I remember everybody speaking about the Joker on the playground and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I do have memory of this phenomenon. But Warner Brothers did want, I mean, in normal studio fashion, they wanted to begin work on a sequel straight away. So much so that they actually stored the sets for the first film to a cost of $250,000. At Pinewood Studios. Yes, but um, unfortunately there was uh, something of a, um, a wrench in the cogs and that was that Tim Burton didn't want to return. He didn't want to make a Batman film. He felt that he didn't want to do a franchise film at this point in his career. He'd already done that with Batman. And he said in a 1989 interview that it had to be something special with the characters in order to entice him back. It had to be doing something new. So Warner Brothers, they went ahead, they brought in Sam Haim, who was brought in to write a few drafts of the script to see if they could come up with an angle that could entice Burton back to the director's chair. And from the Wikipedia article, it does have some details as to what Haim's script is. I've not actually read this. I've read a few Batman scripts, a few Batman unproduced scripts, but not this one. And this one did have Catwoman and Penguin in it, and they were looking for hidden treasure. (laughs) Why? Which I don't get. Is this like... Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Batman. Oh, that does sound like an episode of the 60s Batman,
0: doesn't it? It does. yeah. <laughs> Flint's Treasure or something.
1: It really does.
0: I can just imagine them being in some sort of submarine like they are in the in, the, <laughs> oh, in, the, in oh, the movie. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it feels like the original version of the screenplay had much more continuity with the um with the original film and mm. yeah, stylistically had many more callbacks or or just through-line yeah. characters. You know, most notably Vicky Vale and um, Harvey Dent. Oh, so did Vicky Vale actually... Was she included within this draft yeah, as well apparently, as a returning uh, character? Yeah, one of the original drafts had uh, Bruce Wayne proposing to Vicky Vale at the end of the movie. Ah. So it was definitely a, a proper continuation leaving where they left off. Yeah. Which yeah, ultimately Tim Burton
1: wasn't really interested in. No, I mean I like Kim Basinger. I, I really do. I think she's she's great and she's really good in Batman. But one thing I would say is that because Batman returns so depends where it succeeds on the sexual tension and chemistry between Michael Keaton and Michelle Pfeiffer, between uh Bruce Wayne and Selena Kyle that it was a wise decision to probably leave her out of the script entirely. I imagine if she had been in there, she would have
0: been fridged anyway, because this, with that particular character, the way that they framed her in the original movie, I can't see them really being able to do much with her character unless
1: they transformed her in some way. Yes, Where could you take her character in terms of her relationship with Batman? It felt like it already reached its natural close. Yeah. So, meanwhile, I will say, going back to the making of the film, Tim Burton, he said he was impressed with the work of Daniel Waters on Heathers. I watched that film recently, actually, again... I just picked up the Arrow video version of the film and it's still just brilliantly sharp and witty. I love it. Mm. He brought Daniel Waters on board to write a Beetlejuice sequel, Mm. which I feel like he's probably one of about 24 different writers that have taken a crack at a beetlejuice sequel over the last 30 yeah. years now that is a film in development hell yes constantly yeah. i wonder it will eventually take some form because it is still a brand with a name so it's going to happen at some point and i wonder what form it's so going belated to take. it really is it will be like beetlejuice the care home years Yeah, they won't need any uh, shrunken heads anymore. That's just naturally how Michael Keaton will look by that point. He won't need any makeup. They'll have to dig him up or something. (laughs) So instead, Warner Brothers gave Burton a large amount of creative control in order to, to bring him back. And this was in a move that saw Tim Burton move up to a producer credit but also saw the infamous John Peters and Peter Gruber relegated to exec producer credit and although nothing really goes into detail as to the friction between and uh, like the question mark as to whether or not Tim Burton would return this particular sentence makes me think that that was the sticking point for Tim Burton yeah like th- this is it it's like if if I come back to to this film i don't want to deal with these people yeah
0: i'm sure a giant
1: mechanical spider was proposed at some point <laughs> oh definitely 100 De- <laughs> percent. so yeah so it saw those infamous characters reduced to an exec producer credit and um obviously burton read the sam haim draft and uh didn't like what he had read and brought on daniel waters for rewrites and later in production. Wesley Strick was enlisted for uncredited rewrites and they cited that the part that needed most work was the lack of a master plan for the penguin which Mm. proved to be an issue and so he brought on board this idea that the penguin would kill all the firstborn sons of gotham which to be honest as far as master plans go it's like introduced in like the last five minutes
0: yeah it does feel very much tacked on although you do get a sense that strick was playing on Daniel Waters draft of the Moses parallel which was more played out in the beginning of the film with the baby in the basket and Mm -hmm. also looking out over the city and saying burn baby burn and there's there's lots of other references here and there even like the 33 years later uh, thing is is to do with that so he was almost like bringing it to its kind of natural conclusion but again the development of this screenplay was uh, fraught with difficulties and it uh, shows (laughs)
1: yes there's so much that i like and even love about this film but i think it's this on the screenplay where it just kind of falls apart and falters it just stops attaining the greatness that it's so clearly on the cusp of yeah and i think this is a real issue for me is the fact that it does set up the, the character of penguin marvelously as being the central villain of the piece but even he gets lost in the movie yeah at a certain point in. And it starts off as being like making the statement of this is the Penguin story. And yeah. it ends with that statement as well. But in between, <laughs> it loses that yeah. completely. And I know that it has this political rise and fall, but that even feels like it's playing in the background at times. And I don't know what is... I mean, I know that Penguin says, I know that Copperpot says that he has these grand plans for global cooling, as he says, yeah. for the future. But what is his plan in his rise to power? No. What's the point? What's the end game? And although they introduce this idea of, well, he's going to kill all the firstborn sons of Gotham, that feels like it's so tacked on in the end. I, I get it's Moses parallel. I, I get that completely, yeah. and I see how that works. But it, because it feels so tacked on at the end, it doesn't feel like that was ever really part of his master plan. No. That just feels like, uh, it's a bit of vengeance. Yeah, I feel like it's the biggest
0: flaw of the film that you don't really get a sense, given how they've set him up, of where the Penguin wants to go, what his, what's mm. driving him, what does he really want to do? Because when you get down to the brass tacks, the prime mover, especially in the first half of the film is the character of Max Shrek. He is the one that's instigating many of the events yes. that occur in the film. And without him, there would be no story. <laughs> so, 100%, like, yeah. Uh, he's a, he's really a linchpin. I think we need to go into like the main problem regarding these rewrites. And also that the idea that Tim Burton wanted to do something new, it did have a knock-on effect as to where they were in the screenplay because that character of Max Shrek was originally meant to be Harvey Dent. And when you look at that, Mm -hmm. the kind of plot that they have in the film, the idea of that character wanting the Penguin to become the mayor makes way more sense when you frame it as it being Harvey Dent as a district attorney rather than Max Schreck a corrupt businessman yeah that whole part of it doesn't
1: really work because it just doesn't fit that character yeah i think you can still see harvey dent's outline for that role most certainly yeah yeah i think this is christopher walken in purely bond villain mode as well (laughs) like this is (laughs) is christopher walken
0: in full-on walken mode it really is his walken factor is on 11 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's the strange thing. I absolutely love him in this film. He's yeah. just chewing scenery left, right and centre. And uh, I love the look that they've gone for him. It's like properly Tim Burton comic book villain. Like, Oh, it really is. Yeah. You know, it's his contribution to that lore because obviously he was invented for this film, considering how much screen time he has, it's like you just have to question why he's in this film in a way, because it's like he doesn't really need to be there, but they give a lot of attention to him. But he does get lost again in in the second half of the film. It's just a very uh, undisciplined, I'm going to say story in inverted commas, because I think this is something that I've, (laughs) ever since the very first time I saw this film, which would have been a long, long time ago, I always Mm -hmm. thought there was something slightly wrong with the film. And then every time I've watched the film, subsequently, I've come more to the realisation that there is no plot in this film. Yeah. Of any substance, anyway. Mm -hmm. There's no central story.
1: Yes. It's more of a character. A collection of moments. Yeah, it's a
0: collection of (laughs) moments and it's more of a character study. Uh, you yep. can tell that Burton is, is heavily invested in his villains, but even that gets lost because there's just too much of everything.
1: There's too much vying for space. Yeah. And the thing is, it's not that I want to, like, if I was involved in this film, overseeing it, and, and if somebody asked me, you know, what would you change? And it's like, to be honest, I would be scratching my head and saying, well, I don't want to take any characters out of the film because I love I love what these actors are doing. I love the look of these characters. I love the chemistry. Everybody's doing great work. It looks great as well. It's more so, it's like everything just needs a story. My issue with this film is that if you look at it from a macro sense, it doesn't really work and it's like in the large whole of it. But if you go from a moment to moment, scene to scene basis, I'm like, oh, this scene's great. This scene's great. And that Mm. scene's great. And this scene's great but it doesn't quite stitch up together. Yeah, it's more on how these characters are connected to one another. It's more
0: how they're connected on a character level to one another yeah. that is the real issue. And you can tell that they've tried to to force things through as well. Like yes. One of my biggies is, one, the relationship between Catwoman, Catwoman and the Penguin. And, penguin. and yeah. also Catwoman's beef towards Batman because it just comes out of nowhere and there's no real justification for it. Even before, I mean, you can kind of get the fact that she's a bit pissed for Batman taking one of her nine lives. But even before then, they just start fighting all of a sudden for no reason. Mm. And it's like they've really tried to just force that antagonism without mm. having it develop organically. And I, I find that a big issue because, again, Michelle Pfeiffer's portrayal of that character is uh, is great you completely buy her as selena kyle yes you know i even like the way that she's involved with max shrek that whole part of it works yes it does yeah i mean to be honest really max shrek should have just been used for that purpose alone and it should have just been Mm. the story of her and max shrek and max shrek shouldn't have got involved with all the penguin malarkey it should have been a a different thing Mm -hmm. but yeah her beef with batman I mean, the the Bruce Wayne stuff works fine, but her her specific beef with Batman doesn't really work for me. It doesn't Mm. feel
1: justified enough. Yes, I mean, I do agree. I think what they're going for with that character is just that because of, naturally, what's happened to her and because of her status in this world, after becoming from Selina Kyle to Catwoman, she sees men of power as being an enemy. Mm. And I get that, but I think... The specific beef with Batman himself doesn't make sense because, as you mentioned, he he takes one of her nine lives, but it's their antagonistic relationship is rooted before then. Mm. And I think even just a a minor tweak to solve that would be really to make them, and I know that this is a thing that's normally used for like Batman versus Superman or that type thing, but make it more of a clashing of ideologies. Yeah, yeah. I think the issue is because this Batman is one that, for example, kills people rather cold-bloodedly <laughs> like there is a um, a man that's just stood in front of a newspaper stand blowing fire like a circus performer yep. that he engulfs in flames that guy did nothing no nope. <laughs> batman does kill people rather mercilessly and if if he had been the batman that embraces the code of ethics kind of thing they could have done what they did you know with the dark knight essentially of it's more so Not that they're on the wrong side, but more so that they have a clashing of ideologies and how to deal with the bad people in their lives. Yeah. And that that could have set them off against each other. Yeah, they really should have made it a clash of perspective on vigilantism. Yeah.
0: Catwoman should have been the more, like, homicidal one. And Batman should have been the cleaner figure in that regard. Again, that gets lost because Batman's so dark in this film. (laughs) He really is. I'd forgotten how dark it was, actually, as well. I was like, shit, he kills loads of people in this film
1: i kind of like it though because yeah especially now it, it sets it apart from the rest of it but just because of and it fits burton's worldview but oh my god is he dark yeah you see, he is so cold-blooded it's funny as well like that you know people t-
0: i mean not that i want to defend batman versus superman but you know when yeah. people were talking about how dark batman was in that film and i was like oh, you've they've completely forgotten about michael keaton playing him like this in uh In Batman Returns. Yes. But yeah, you can tell that there's some great ideas
1: and both those individually are great, but they don't mix together very well. To be honest, that is the same issue that I have with Batman versus Superman as well is because in terms of the the ideologies they present, Batman and Superman are two superheroes that kill motherfuckers. Yeah. So what's the point? Like, why are they angry with each other? It doesn't matter. It's supposed to come down to the methodology kind of thing, like, yeah. you know, h- how each one does their thing. But they both kill motherfuckers, so what difference does it make? Yeah.
0: If they'd planned correctly, they would have probably made Superman the, a much more cleaner figure.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: And then have Batman be the uh, sort of dark homicidal sort of maniac. And then it would have been much better. I mean, it would have been much better if Zack Snyder hadn't made the film. But, um... <laughs> In a way, they're um, trying to make a cinematic universe. But in the same way that they make these earlier Batman films, in a way, it's like they're kind of, there's, a, there's a mix between yeah. the two where they're living dangerously and it doesn't pay off then. Yeah. So uh, this film is, yeah, it's an incredibly frustrating watch because I would not call this film a dud. Like I mentioned before that run of yeah. films that Tim Burton made from Pee Wee all the way until Ed Wood. There's no duds there. No, But this is probably his most flawed, definitely like some sort of flawed masterwork, really. It's the best way of describing it.
1: Honestly, that's how I would describe it. Because I like it and I love all of the elements at work here. I really do. And I am frustrated by the film just as much as you are because there's so much of it that clearly works beautifully. There's just some fundamental flaws that just prevent it from reaching (laughs) that masterwork status. And we definitely need to go into the
0: fact that this is, yeah, this is most definitely Tim Burton's Batman because from a design standpoint, this is just Tim Burton unadulterated. This period of Tim Burton is when he really spreads his wings because you have edward scissorhands batman returns and even though he didn't direct it a nightmare before christmas are almost like that is tim burton distilled at his purest in terms of his drawing style and everything and his design aesthetics those three films especially are like the most tim burtony
1: films. No, yeah,
0: definitely. Like especially when you start getting into sort of the design aesthetic and, and the, the cinematic inspirations behind a lot of a lot of things. Um
1: just before we do get to that point, because I, I certainly do have some opinions on the look of the film as mm. well, the the audio and visual experience that is Batman Returns. But I just want to mention a couple of key points as well, just in regards to the making of the film that yeah. kind of influenced some of the uh, decisions that were made as well. We've already talked about the fact that this, you know, this is a film that is is—it's an embarrassment of riches. It's bursting at the seams in terms of the characters, but as a result... They're all vying for space. Yeah, We've mentioned that Harvey Dent was dropped from the film, but another character that was actually dropped from the film was Robin. <laughs> and Marlon Wayans was cast, signed on, and had already been to a wardrobe fitting for the role. And Robin was supposed to be a mechanic. I don't think he was supposed to wear the Robin suit, but he had a mechanic suit that had an R on it. Okay. In that way, I think it was going to be the film in which, by the end of it, they teased that he became Robin or something mm. like that. But at one point, he was going to drive the Batmobile. But yes, uh, it actually came from Warner Brothers themselves to drop this character. Not, not Tim Burton, not anybody else yeah. in the film, but from Warner Brothers themselves to drop that character because there was too much going on. Yeah. I mean, that is a decision to make from warner brothers considering that i mean i would expect that they would be like yeah put robin in it means more happy meal toys it means more merchandise it means more of an angle for us to be able to market this film to kids (laughs) and they've gone actually um yeah we've we've got too much going on (laughs) can you please pull it back i mean
0: i would be very surprised if we ever see another cinematic robin in a batman film i will be incredibly surprised Mm. and if they if he did appear it would be yeah much more like how they did it with the nolan films where it's more sort of very subtly hinted at rather than anything overtly batman sidekick robin Mm -hmm. because that character anyway i feel like even the comic book writers struggle with that character he's very much a, a relic of a much earlier time
1: yeah definitely uh,
0: the idea of batman being a lone figure is much more appealing and easier to work with than Mm -hmm. having this sort of breezy side character (laughs) of robin and also like considering what they did with him in batman forever and and obviously batman and robin yeah i would be very surprised if they ever had another cinematic portrayal of that character
1: i mean even in you know considering that man of steel batman versus superman was supposed to be the beginning of the glorious dc cinematic universe he's killed off before he's killed off before it even begins says everything (laughs) about the studio standing on robin has a character (laughs) i can't see him having any place whatsoever especially considering that they've gone with a much younger batman for the new one
0: yeah i can't i can't see him having a place in the matt reeves films or film i don't know
1: (laughs) yeah
0: <laughs> what's gonna happen with that one jesus that that film is uh unintentionally a troubled production
1: yes yeah i don't think it's to do with any of the no, creative no, factors like involved things. whatsoever everything's just... external <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> bless him <laughs> i do feel bad this is just an aside but one of my friends was cast in the film and got dropped because of COVID. Aww. And he's a massive Batman fan. Aww. But yeah, and um, I mean, this wasn't the only issue as well that they had with regards to um, actors dropping from the film as well. I think one of the main ones that we need to go into as well is Annette Bening's oh, yeah. uh, inclusion yeah. as Catwoman because we've talked about Michelle Pfeiffer and how amazing she is in this film, but she was not the first choice and was yeah. actually a last-minute replacement for Catwoman. Yeah. I mean, do you want to go into a little detail about what happened there? Yeah, so they... Castanet
0: benning who i think was most famous at the time for doing um was it grifters
1: amongst other things yeah it was like the beginning of her career
0: and obviously yeah she was with warren Beatty at the time which yeah warren Beatty's a strange old figure isn't he he's kind of like <laughs> ubiquitous but like yeah oh god i can go on about warren Beatty for ages but
1: i think that's the first time anybody's ever uttered those words in one sentence <laughs> i could go on about warren Beatty for ages <laughs> He's just a really strange figure in in, in Hollywood.
0: He's a bit of an enigma, isn't he? Um, He is,
1: and I I read um, Easy Rider, Rage and Ball, a fantastic book, and there's a whole section about Warren Beatty and Bonnie and Clyde and those characters, and like he pushed for the idea that it was a character that could not get it up and that's why he killed people at odds with the idea of like what people portrayed back then <laughs> these kind of macho characters these you know masculine leading roles and he's like pushing for this well i want to play this character that can't get an erection and that's why he kills people <laughs> that's like he is an oddball i think that's the charm of warren Beatty.
0: the myth of warren beattie's become bigger than the films that he made Outside of a handful of films, like a lot of the other films are either huge duds or have just largely been forgotten. Yeah. But going back to yeah. <laughs> Batman Returns, Annette Bening was cast as Catwoman. And then very close to uh, production, I think, Tim Burton gets a call saying Annette Bening was pregnant. Yeah. I think Tim Burton describes it on the documentary as a, a mixture of emotions going, hey, congratulations, that's great fuck what do we do yeah <laughs> and then we get
1: this whole weird sean young thing yeah i hadn't seen the shadow of the bat documentary before uh, last night when i watched it in preparation for this episode and i knew of the story of sean young essentially stalking the producers for the film <laughs> in an uh, attempt to have herself cast as Catwoman. But I always thought that, oh, it's one of those stories where I think there's probably some truth to it, but it's been embellished. And actually, it's all true. Uh, like I think it tells you everything that they even have Sean Young on the documentary talking about it. That's what I was actually shocked. She actually comes in to talk about herself essentially stalking them in a Catwoman outfit bursting yeah. into the office.
0: I mean, in her defense, I imagine it would have been shot as part of her interview for the batman film because i imagine that that documentary is in parts and it probably would have been filmed at the same time so i mean it's not as crazy as you you would think about it because she was originally cast in the original batman in the 1989 batman film Mm -hmm. as vicky vale but had to drop out because she broke her collarbone so this was some sort of follow-up and her trying to get back into the film series and I think at one point, and us talking about Vicky Vale, her story being over, which is why she's not in this film, there was originally, I don't know in what draft or whether it was just a discussion, there was some talk of her becoming Catwoman, hmm. which would have probably made more sense on a narrative point of view if they'd done something with that character. Yeah. It's probably easier to leave it be, but there was talk of that.
1: And we know that this series isn't beholden to the kind of comic book origins. It's it's willing to do its own thing entirely. yeah. yeah. Which I like, to be honest. I, I, I find that refreshing. Yeah.
0: It's strange, because even in that story, there's no kind of... doesn't seem to be any end to that story. It's just like, she comes in dressed as Catwoman. Cool. We we cast Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think part of the issue is, I think if it was just for Catwoman, then she's got the role. But I think, given the aggressiveness with which she pursued that role, it probably made her a not very appealing choice for selena kyle specifically because of how meek and downtrodden she is in this world yeah i
0: think it's also a combination of them wanting to get a name person in there as well because Mm. i think by that time sean young's star had faded somewhat due to a lot of ill fortune as well like like batman yeah not being able to be in the in the 1989 batman and um and other different issues and i know brooke shields was considered for the part at one point but the studio didn't consider her a bankable enough star at that time so Mm. they did really want to go for a huge bankable star from that era to be in that role which is why they got michelle pfeiffer the studio more than got their wish as well because i think she was a much bigger star at that point than annette benning anyway
1: I think it shows in terms of the salaries as well well, that they received because Annette Bening, I think they said something like Annette Bening was getting one million or something like that and Michelle Pfeiffer got three plus a percentage of the overall gross. Yeah. Which just goes to show about her rising star at that time as well. Yeah. And uh, Michael Keaton got 11 million apparently for (laughs) his uh,
0: 10 minutes of screen time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. I, I made a reference to this. I know that he appears as Batman, right? But yeah until Bruce Wayne has a moment like where he actually has a full-on conversation. It's like 28 minutes into yep. the film. <laughs> Honestly, I, I paused it so I could take note of it. It's like, yeah. it's like 20, 26 to 28 minutes into the film when Bruce Wayne finally gets his moment where the scene stops and he gets a conversation with Alfred. Mm. I think that says everything really about the film. Tim Burton tries to justify it in the documentary as well, saying that he does
0: recognize that Batman and Bruce Wayne are not in the film an awful lot, but he kind of saw it as being appropriate for the character. Like Batman Mm. lives in the shadows and you don't know an awful lot about him. But it does make him more of a reactive character. Mm-hmm. Rather than a participant in the narrative yeah. as
1: such, but that would work if the film was being told from the perspective of the Gotham City populace of the people yeah. of Gotham City. But it's not. It's not told from their perspective. That's not our audience placement into this film. No, it's weird because who? Who is? Because I actually think maybe Selena Kyle is supposed to be. Because she's the one that starts off from a place of normalcy and then grows into this world of darkness with all of these other characters. Yeah. And the film is called Batman Returns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're here for Batman. Yeah, it's just, he's barely in the
0: film. I, I described his appearance as like some sort of extended cameo. Mm. I mean, it, it's strange in a way, like, there are certain parallels. I get with some of the later Nolan films in that regard like you know the most notable one being The Dark Knight Rises which barely features Batman at all. Yeah. You do get the sense that they're really struggling at including Batman in this film Mm -hmm. and you get the sense that Tim Burton isn't particularly interested in Batman either.
1: Yes that's the issue I would say that's at
0: work here. He's just way more invested in his grotesque villains much more than anything that's that Batman's offering. Because even though they you know, they did some like redesign work, the Batman sequences, they don't really pop in the
1: way no. that they did in the original film. They just feel like they're an obligation
0: <laughs> more than anything else.
1: Yes. I mean, I will, just to touch upon something about this, I like the audio and visual experience of watching this film. And I think that it's got a fantastic set. Yeah. Like, it's got one fantastic set. But I would say that Batman feels like It takes place over a city, whereas Batman Returns feels like it takes place over a square as well. And in that way, the action, when it comes to it, like there's a good chase scene with Batman's car. But like you say, the action doesn't feel like it pops. It feels more like we're watching a stunt show at times. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I look at what they did with the 1989 Batman. And yes, technically things may have changed in terms of the visual cohesion or whatever you want to say. But I still feel like that had a grander scope. In terms of the city as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a very sound stagey film,
0: this one. Yeah. It does remind me an awful lot of Hook. Yes. Where it does feel a little bit constrained by its sound mm-hmm. staginess. Like I mean, I'm not sure what the deal was, because obviously we were talking before about the sets at Pinewood, where they shot the original film, being uh, in storage. And then all of a sudden when they make Batman Returns, they're not filming in Pinewood, they're filming on the Warner Brothers lot. Yeah and they i think they used
1: about 50 percent of all the stages at warner brothers to make the film yeah there's some great interior sets as well oh yeah yeah i want to say i think these sets are fantastic they are great sets i especially love a real understated one is selena kyle's apartment yeah with that metal beam shooting right through the center of her apartment this low-hanging metal beam that she's painted pink yeah and that says everything about her place in this world and <laughs> this horribly oppressive world. Yeah. The look of the film is fantastic, but I think because of that soundstaginess, it is constricted in terms of what they can do. Yeah, because I don't think there are any... Are there any
0: genuinely exterior shots in this film? Or if there are, they're generally they're all night shoots. Yeah, you know, in the original Batman, they did actually go out on the Bat Lot in Pinewood and and build outdoor sets, Mm -hmm. so it did feel like you were genuinely in a city. Whereas I think they've gone definitely for a more stylized. I mean, not that the original Batman wasn't stylized, but they've they've gone even heavier into
1: that. Yeah. It's almost become a, a bit more fairy tale-esque as yeah. well. I mean, it more suits the Penguin as well in terms of that fairy tale um, element of the film. Yeah. But yeah, it's gone more of a dark fantasy route, whereas the first one was a lot more based on like, I guess, like Metropolis, Fritz Lang and that type of German, early German yeah. expressionism and that type of thing. And I think it works in the context of all the villains, but
0: when you get Batman in there, it doesn't work as well. Yeah. Yeah, I get the sense as well. Like I did a bit of reading about this, and it does feel like there are very mixed messages about Michael Keaton on this film. Like, I get some things where he said this is the film that he prefers, and then I get other things where he's talked about not actually having seen this film in its entirety, and he only did it for the money. In a way, I kind of have to side with the latter because he I don't know, he, I get the feeling that like he's a little bit bored in this film. Mm. It, when you compare his performance in the original versus the sequel... Even though he's not in the film very much, the appearances that he does make, I don't know, I just get the sense that he's not invested in it as much.
1: And the thing is, that I think, that brings us to that as well is the fact that Batman himself has something of a lesser presence in this film. And I'm not just strictly speaking about screen time as well, mm. but because there's so much going on elsewhere and in regards to the characters that they introduce, and I'm not asking that you know they repeat what they did before, but when we look at Batman... this is going to sound like that itchy and scratchy and poochy moment. But when we look at Batman, when he's not on screen, people are speaking about Batman, about the danger of doing what they're doing while Batman could be in the darkness at any moment to strike out against them. It's like Batman has a presence in scenes where he's not in. In Batman Returns, he doesn't. No. I don't think you get the feeling that Batman is there or Batman is watching or Batman is aware or that yeah. people are particularly scared of doing what they're doing in Batman's presence in Batman City. Yeah. It doesn't feel like that. It it feels like a circus of villains in Gotham.
0: Definitely. And also like in addition to that, I don't think the character of Batman or Bruce Wayne has any particular influence over the plot outside. Mm. I think the only thing he does is jam the signal to the penguins at the end. <laughs> Yeah. and obviously he sort of is partly responsible for the penguin's death at the end with the bats flying out but even then it just feels like it's that's a tacked on thing in a way yeah and everything else that happens in the film absolutely
1: nothing to do with him no it's a very uh, indiana jones raiders of the lost ark thing where you know the series of events would have played out exactly the same <laughs> with or without him yeah that is like the main thing that they've struggled with in terms of And I I think this is where it leads to what we mentioned earlier about the film not having a story, because it doesn't have a story for Batman. And it nearly it nearly doesn't this is what we're talking about, because you've got all these characters that are connected in in all these kind of weird different ways, and one of the things I was just about to mention is like if we take (laughs) the Penguin out of the subplot with Christopher Walker and make it more about that Batman and Penguin are two souls that are kind of connected by the fact that they've lost their parents, they struggle with their identity as well. And they almost touch upon that very early on as being like, like Alfred says to Bruce Wayne about, you know, why do you suspect that this grotesque, horrible human is a villain? You know, you have so much in common with him. And I feel like I wrote in my notes, like, why isn't this film about that? <laughs> why isn't that the thing that they do with Batman? Because that's the issue about the story, is that there's nothing for Batman to do. Yeah, and they seem to heavily hint at it. There's, like, duality in all the main
0: three characters... And they purposely go out of their way to, like, say that, you know, these are the comparison between the human and the animal. And the fact yeah. that all three of these characters are human representations of an animal. And they yeah. all have their accompanying real-life creatures as well. You know, have got Batman with his bats. You've got the penguin with his penguins. And you've got Catwoman with, with her cats. It's very, like, overtly obvious. But it doesn't quite make that final push. Yeah, it's, it's, to it's all a bit make too surface. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's why it's incredibly frustrating. And it's incredibly frustrating that they didn't find that avenue for Batman himself to make it work in line with those characters. Because I think it is there. I just, I'm not sure whether they, um, it's one of those things where they would never admit it, but they just ran out of time and and everything because it just feels like this film was, um because they had a bit of a delay in getting everyone together, that once they did get everyone together, it was a bit of a rush to the finish.
1: No, yeah, I think, in a way, I've, I've mentioned as well, I've I wrote down in my notes, and I mentioned to you before we actually be on recording, that this is the film in the Batman series that reminds me most of Return of the Jedi, Yeah. because there's a particular moment that I want to speak about, and with Return of the Jedi, what I would say is that it's a film that I find to be heavily flawed. And one that the more time that goes by, the more times I watch it, I realize that oh, there are some things really in this film that don't work. Conversely, it still contains some of my favorite moments of the series, of the Star Wars series. And this film is that for me with Batman. In that, yes, I I do think it's flawed. I think that they don't do enough with Batman. I think that it has too many characters vying for space all at the same time. But at the same time, what they do with Batman and Selina Kyle to lead up to that ballroom scene. I think the moment at the New Year's ball or the Christmas ball where Selina and Bruce Wayne realize yeah. that the Batman and Catwoman is probably my favorite comic book moment Mm. and it's not a it's not a moment where people are fighting each other it's not a moment where people you know like this this grand moment of like epic action it's just a moment of two people realizing who they are i don't know i think that's worth the price of admission alone and the way that the music drops out and danny elfman's score comes in as well it's a magical moment in this film I just wanted to mention that as well before we continue.
0: Yeah. In a way, though, I think it's slightly um, underplayed because I always get the sense that they kind of know anyway. Yeah. And the revelation is maybe not quite as strong as it could be, but I like the individual moment. Again, it's like I love the individual moment, but the connections between scenes to scenes doesn't really work. But again, yeah, I love the masquerade ball in of itself. And I like the idea that, it's a masquerade ball, but they're the only two characters that aren't wearing masks wearing at that, masks, that particular yeah. <laughs> moment. This is why I think it's a shame that Tim Burton has gone down this kind of either more of the same route or played it incredibly safe at this point in his career when you you know he's a very hungry young director, you get the sense that he's really pulling in all of the, all of his influences like when you've got the massive uh, Phantom of the Opera, influence in that scene with yeah. the the red death on the stairs yeah and yeah obviously all the cabinet of dr caligari stuff and oh and, yeah, and allusions yeah. to the weimar republic and even calling one of the main characters max streck from the, <laughs> yeah. the, the famous actor from Nosferatu, of, yeah uh, who played count Orlock. and there's loads of other different references to the weimar republic in the film and there's you know there's many many more of the things that are going on here yeah, I just think it's a, a shame that we've we've lost that Tim Burton somewhere along the line. and <sighs> Yeah. He's kind of just been influenced by himself. He's one of those kind of characters that he's just influenced by his own work yes. rather than anything
1: else outside these days. Like you mentioned earlier, but what we're seeing of Tim Burton now is a Tim Burton making Tim Burton movies. Yeah. It feels like somebody else is trying to do that now. And we said it about Tenet and Christopher Nolan as well. But yeah, what what did happen? I also think that, um, I mean, I hate to say this because it is something of a cliche, but I do feel like technology as well and how that has changed the visual style of Tim Burton. Things have become, like you say, because I know that this, this film is soundstagey, but it's a great soundstage. Oh yeah, it, it all feels a bit more digital now, even in Tim Burton's filmography, and in terms of the cameras that are used as well, they all feel have that digital film feel as well. I think
0: that's the jarring thing as well, because so much of his influence is rooted in classic
1: cinema and and it's like silent era German expressionism and, and old school techniques. Yeah, yeah that it, it
0: kind of needs to be executed in that way in order to really work. Yeah, and this is a. Um, a transitional film because it was one of the last major Hollywood films to be made entirely in this way. There's a little bit of Mm. CGI here and there, but mostly it was made using very old school techniques. Mm. You know, this is one of the last major films to be released before Jurassic Park. And I think from that point onwards, films definitely started changing in terms of how they were made.
1: Yeah, 100%. I was actually watching a... um documentary about another film by another comic book filmmaker army of darkness by sam raimi mm. which came out at a very similar time i think that was 93 yeah and they were speaking about with that film as well about being on the you know the, these films that came out in this period of time were these like the last vanguards of this old way of filmmaking and then jurassic park came out and changed everything and we've talked about it as well another film that we covered on the show was tremors all these films are essentially the last of this breed of films essentially and Mm -hmm. you can see that everything's changed since then everything's just grown in another direction entirely i think one thing as well that I i would like to speak about in regards to batman returns and i don't think we've really gone into it in depth is um the actors as well like yeah We've talked about Michelle Pfeiffer being brought on board as well uh, as a last-minute replacement, and I honestly think she is the beating heart of this film. Yeah. yeah. She really is. I do feel like she is supposed to be our audience grounding in this world because she is the one that starts from a place of normalcy and becomes wild uh, yeah. as a character, because it is brought into the world that is populated by Batman and the Penguin. But, man, Michelle Pfeiffer absolutely just owns the role. She, she has this, like... The, the amazing vulnerability that she has playing Selena Kyle against the kind of the power she has as Catwoman, but I I love that when she is Catwoman, although she's powerful and she's fierce and she hits all of those notes, she's still got that sense of vulnerability about her. There's still something like emotionally raw about her character. Yeah, struggling with her place in the world. And I would say now more so than
0: any other batman villain outside of maybe um heath ledger uh, playing the joker who actually did manage to sort of step out of the shadow of jack nicholson's portrayal yeah but i still feel like now the way that she played that character of catwoman and the and the overall look has now become the definitive portrayal because even like you know when they did that with uh, anne hathaway and in *The Dark Knight Rises*, it's it's so um subtle, and what they did that with that character was so completely different that it wasn't really Catwoman. No, unless <laughs> said about the pit off, maybe.
1: Uh, the oh, 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 I want to, I want to mention a few things about that film, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, I, I've written that she that that performance essentially has overshadowed every Catman performance that has come Cat since. Man. <laughs> Ca- did I say Catman? Catman, Ca- Catman, do. <laughs> Uh, every <laughs> cat man meow um,
0: oh, dear.
1: oh my gosh her performance has overshadowed every cat woman performance that has come since even the Anne Hathaway character I would say I, I like what Anne Hathaway does with the Dark Knight Rises I like her in that film but it's not it's not the performance that I walked away from that film thinking, you know, like I did with Heath Ledger with The Dark Knight. It's not the yeah. performance I walked away thinking, holy shit, they stole every scene that they were in. Yeah. And I think it's because that character's not given that opportunity within that film. I don't think it's anything that Anne Hathaway's done. But like you say, the look of the film, the 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 standing of that character in that world, it's it's not placed in a point where it can essentially escape the shadow of no. Michelle Pfeiffer in this no. film. I think it's because they really positioned Bane for that role <laughs> in that yeah. film as the one that everybody would be talking about when yeah. they when they left the cinema. But yeah, I, I'm hoping that something they do something with the character in the Batman. Yeah, well, from the trailer, it does look like they're going more that understated route once more. But I'm still hoping that the character embodies something that's like going to grab people and say, "This is Catwoman." Yeah. You know,
0: I think it's mainly because the the stylistic route they've gone down with a lot of the subsequent films just hasn't allowed for that kind of theatricality that you can get mm. with the Tim Burton style. I think yeah, the Tim Burton style allowed to bring that character to its full potential in ways yeah. that you wouldn't have been able to before or since. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why it's gone down as being the definitive version of that character on screen, because it wasn't hampered by external stylistic choices, because yeah you do get the feeling that tim burton and i think this this goes into how they developed the screenplay because i know that the penguin was more of a a studio note it was something that they wanted to have in the film but i think the catwoman angle was more of a tim burton idea so yeah yeah you do get the feeling that yeah the whole film is is built around her rather than anything else which is why it works so well
1: i like as well with this film although i do feel like it it does have too many... I keep prefacing everything that I say is it has too many characters, but I like the efficiency with which it sets up these characters as well. Yeah, yeah. The Penguin's set up in the opening in terms of his origin, and then Catwoman's origins are set up within a, you know 15 minutes or something like that. And I I like the efficiency of the way in which it, um, he hits those marks. All of that feels fine if the story had a greater purpose for these yeah. characters. But all of that feels fine. It made me think, wow, this is really at odds with like how they really establish characters now where it's all about, like, you have to have a whole film of this person becoming this character, or at least half a film.
0: Well, it it, it goes between one or the other, doesn't it? It goes either from being a whole film to being a uh, a PDF uh, or or a GIF. well
1: (laughs) to be honest i'm of the opinion now where we've we started going the other way but i would say like more towards the noughties when uh, comic book movies started coming out it was just origin movie after origin movie after origin movie and i was so done with it and i get we're at a point now where all of these characters are so well established that you can just jump in at like year 10 year 15 and everybody gets it everybody knows the backstory of this character just get into the story it it does seem to be have gone the other way now. I mean, look at what they've done with Spider Man in the MCU, or what they're doing with Batman, where it's more like they've said purposely, "This is year two, we're not doing yeah. year one." But then, you, yeah, you go the other way, like the fucking origins of the Justice League and shit like that, and it's like
0: <laughs> fucking hell, like that is the worst way possible to do any kind. Of, I mean, but I think that's when you're dealing with filmmakers and writers of a uh, a lower caliber. <laughs> it's just, certainly, I love the beginning of this film. I think for the first 15, 20 minutes, it's flawless. Yes, yeah, I'd agree. It's only really when you start getting to the Batman stuff and the Penguin starts to reappear and you kind of go, what's this Penguin about? Yeah. That you really start to struggle <laughs> with it. Because, uh, yeah, the opening and the and the way it sets up Max Shrek and the Square and mm-hmm. Selina Kyle, all that works great.
1: And would you say, and this always does become like one of these... Big questions for films based around this time of year. Is Batman Returns a Christmas movie? Is it one that you return to at Christmas that gives you those Christmas feelings? Ho, ho, ho. I don't personally. It definitely is a Christmas movie released at summer.
0: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Just like, why? Why didn't they release it in December? It doesn't make sense. I think it was before that time, though, wasn't it? When they could do that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, nowadays, they definitely would have done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it is a Christmas movie because, yeah, it starts... With a Christmasy theme, and even at the end, mm-hmm. Bruce Wayne says, "You know, Merry Christmas, Alfred." And stuff. yeah, so yeah. it definitely has a kind of definitely a Christmas framing, which I like. I like the way that they've framed this film. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't particularly watch it at Christmas time. Like I said, I haven't watched this film in uh, quite some time. Yeah, I genuinely think I loved Batman growing up it was pretty much james bond batman star wars yeah like that's it and all my toys outside of things like trains and stuff but like in terms of action figures and things batman and star wars were pretty yeah. much neck and neck you know i've got a Bill.
1: you know different types of action figures all that kind of stuff i remember the happy meal toys for batman just kept coming round and round and round yeah. of mac again and I had a immense collection of like Batman figurines. Yeah. And, and again, we were living in a time where
0: the superhero movie was a, a rare thing. Fresh. Yeah, it, and was, it, was, it was fresh. New. It, was, it like... was new. It was exciting. And also, I think because there were individual takes, it was constantly changing as well. Yeah. And then I think when you started getting movies like you know Batman and Robin... And even like when you start going into the 2000s with Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, which for me is a series I'm not as invested in. Philistine. Yeah, but uh, (laughs) I'm not as invested in that. And my love for superhero things started to wane around that point. And I really like the Nolan films, but I think for other reasons, I think because they were kind of going more into that kind of almost like heat vibe yes yeah and they were influenced by other films and i like that and i think that's for me that's what i like about cinematic portrayals of superhero characters when they go down Mm -hmm. they don't just do a verbatim copy of what's in the comic book they see it as more of a um right we're doing this character for the cinema therefore it's going to be influenced by other things in cinema yeah (laughs) yeah um rather than just being a right we'll just plonk the camera And,
1: you know, you can do your just verbatim portrayal. I agree with you. I I do 100% agree with you on that point. But what I would say is that looking at Spider-Man, for me personally... It's just simply that, for me, Spider-Man 2 embodies everything that a pulp comic book movie can be and what a comic book portrayal can be. But my issue with the overall landscape of comic book movies isn't with this idea of them being these kind of pulpy comic book movies. It's just that they're all that. I think there's space for them to be a number of different things. If studios allowed them to be... I mean, I'm not a comic book reader. I've never been really a, a huge comic book reader. I've read plenty over the years but i've never been like oh i'm going to collect these issues of spider-man or those issues of superman or batman or that type of thing i've never really been into that side of things but when i approach these superhero films it's from a cinematic point of view i'm, I'm looking mm. at them from the position of them being superhero movies and i like what spider-man 2 brings to the table but that is a sam raimi film it's still got an incredible creative behind the camera i think so many of these films are populated by people that aren't directors known for their visions so the directors known for getting the job done essentially yeah, yeah. so there's this lack of personality that's brought to the table
0: yeah they've essentially become workmanlike. like and yeah i don't know what it is but like i was saying going back to like the fact i've not seen this film for a long time I'm not sure what there's a combination of that lack of interest in superhero films and also maybe, you know, what's happened to Tim Burton as well. Mm-hmm. It's just made me not go back to these films as much as I used to because I used to watch yeah. these films
1: quite regularly. And it was a Christmas movie for me, this one. Yeah. I remember vividly. Uh, one christmas i you know because every kid couldn't go to sleep at, on christmas eve you were <laughs> a wide awake and uh, i remember one night i just couldn't sleep and i watched four o'clock in the morning batman and then batman returns and then that just became a christmas thing for me then <laughs> so yeah this this film gave me when i watched it today it gave me that christmasy feeling and i was like i'd forgotten that it was released at the summer what an odd odd yeah. time to release this type of film
0: it really is because i've forgotten it was released in the summer and i was like oh yeah it makes sense for that back then but then yeah, when, course, when they yeah. started talking about rushing the post production to get that summer release and i was like what <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so again it, oh, it's like you know it is like die hard which is now firmly a christmas movie but again was released in the summertime
1: well i've plenty to say about that soon yeah
0: but it does join that odd club of unintentional christmas movies that were released in the summer (laughs) yeah it's just a weird thing that they would not try and tie that in with christmas but again there was no uh, climate for um, christmas releases at that time i think christmas around that time was firmly rooted in family movies like you know proper like pg family movies yes yeah. and nothing else mm-hmm. you didn't get big tent poles. you know you get
1: films like you don't know dragon heart i remember yeah, came out or, around yeah like no, november and yeah home alone yeah. definitely 100 things like that well yeah I, I mean and now they say that that christmas day is a huge day for cinema mm. like i remember like when avatar came out in 2009 that was a big day for both avatar and sherlock holmes and the reason is because apparently it's a tradition amongst certain families in America that you go to the cinema at Christmas. Yep, it's not here. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that was a tradition here. <laughs> we haven't talked about Danny DeVito yet. Danny
0: DeVito is <laughs> Dorgo.
1: Oh my God. And
0: Common Stone Keeper. And Zendaya is Michi. Oh, of course then, Zendaya is Michi, yeah.
1: Zendaya is Michi. And Danny DeVito is Penguin. <laughs> So we do have to talk about it. one of the things that they mentioned on the documentary was that he was in character all the time, which yeah. I imagine was quite insufferable. <laughs> consider- and You know what? We haven't even talked about the fact how, how prescient this has been, considering that we're recording this just after Joe Biden's been announced as the next president yeah. elect. I guess it's this is one of those stories that's always going to be relevant when it comes to slimeball politicians. Yeah. But holy moly, is this prescient right now at this point in history that this grotesque weird-handed weird headed <laughs> <laughs> eccentric character yeah has been uh, used by billionaires for political purposes to become a leader and then crashed and burned yeah but yeah i watched it with my wife and she was just like oh my god it's just trump it's just trump <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah the way you bit that guy's nose it's just trump yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is it, strange though like with that character Considering he is, he opens the film, like his origin opens the film and he's meant to be the main villain but because of the way that they've constructed the story he gets so lost in the thing yeah and um I I never get the sense of what is driving him no and what his master plan is they had the problem with what the penguins master plan was they tried to rectify it but it is so tacked on and incidental that it may as well not be there because Batman thwarts it in about two seconds anyway yes that whole thing with him and his uh, was it the red angle gang or whatever it's called
1: oh Oh, yeah. i the, oh, uh, the, the red th- triangle, that's it. The red triangle, yeah. Red triangle. The, 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 the red, red angle. angle. <laughs> Morning, angle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a weird thing. There's a, there's a very um, Twin peaks feel to one of those characters. I feel. Yeah. Uh, the, the one with the poodle reminds me of Log Lady for some reason. Yeah. I and, don't know why.
0: And what she's doing at the end as well is um, based on the guy from um, Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, is it? You know, 30 seconds, I'm counting... <laughs> kind of thing yeah oh, of course i'm it is, pretty yeah. sure again just too many ideas because i don't feel like that red triangle gang is um developed enough to work fully and i don't understand the connection between those two is
1: kind of there but it's kind of not and you've got even in and amongst the red triangle gang you've got vincent Chevelli as the organ grinder and he's not given anything it's a real shame with that because i just it's got a lot of potential and this is where
0: i keep thinking like why do they keep doing this and they keep doing it. They've not fucking learned over this whole 30 years since this film was made that why are you trying to make a film and put like so many different villains yeah. in the same film? because it just doesn't give them any time to develop them properly. But
1: I give it far more kudos for trying something at this time, but I understand that so many films since have fallen into this trap and not learnt from this mistake, but Batman Returns I give like a pass for, because this is one of the first films that did this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. it was like you know we were trying to do too much with these characters, and we were trying to be too creative with these characters. And it's like this was essentially unexplored territory. You know, they were doing something different within the genre yeah. at that time. Comic book movies weren't a thing, so yeah. I get where that mistake has come from. It's not, and it's not come from a point of view of oh well, we need to have this character, that character, and that character in the film so we can market all the toys. I do get that, like, the Penguin's in there because there was a studio push for that character, but they still feel a part of Tim Burton's vision, even if, like, they still feel like they belong in that world, even if they don't have a place within the story. It gets away with it for me, just simply because it's the first of those type of films. Yeah,
0: but, you know, essentially it is two film ideas smashed together because I would happily watch a film... Yeah. With the Penguin and the Red Triangle gang and Batman battling them. And then I would also happily watch a film where it's Selena Kyle, Catwoman and
1: Max Shrek. Yes. And that will be fine as well on its own. As much as I love the Masquerade Ball scene, I almost feel like this is should have been Catwoman's film in a way. Mm. I, I get that it's too early to start talking about spin-offs within the mm. world, but it almost feels like that that's the film that everybody was interested in making. Yeah, definitely. That's the only element that feels like it it has a true story and an arc as well. Yeah, cuz I even get
0: the feeling that it's like that with even when you get the the you know the conclusion of the film with the penguin's death and stuff, that just feels like a bit anticlimactic. Mm. You get the bit where Batman's in his glider and then he crashes through the the zoo. Yes. And then the bats are released and he falls back into the pool. Mm-hmm. And then he's forgotten about for about five minutes. Yeah. Whilst they deal with Catwoman and Max Shrek. And then after all that's gone over with, then they go back to the Penguin and he's kind of alive, but dying yeah and then he just dies
1: yeah yeah like that's it yeah he just comes back to die <laughs> yeah it's, it's, a bit- it's like oh that, that death was a bit anticlimactic so we're going to do another anticlimactic death. <laughs> yeah. and hope that two anticlimactic deaths make it work yeah i also want to mention as well just talking about the cars that or the vehicles that batman does use i do like the moment in which is a uh, his batmobile turns into a uh, huge black dildo <laughs> honestly like I no. I got a bit embarrassed when I was watching. I was like, ooh, <laughs> pulling at my collar!" Like, "Oh, don't don't look, don't look, Ali, <laughs> avert avert your eyes." And one thing that I did want to mention, as we have just gone over this, being the film that started the whole multiple villains craze. Mm-hmm. Um, it also started something else that goes into the Spider-Man films as well, and that is I've ri- I've written down are uh, the early nineties to nineties when your comic book movies had potential rapes in them. And <laughs> <laughs> there is a scene in this film in which um, two men are about to rape a woman before Catwoman turns up to the rescue. Yeah. And it does very much remind me of the alleyway scene in Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. Where uh, Spider-Man saves Mary Jane from being potentially, possibly raped. Which, to be honest, does this have a place in kids' films? Well, I think at this stage, they
0: didn't really know where they were going marketing wise anyway i mean i think it's very much a stock in trade thing when you are deal yeah. with pulpy movies that there's going to be two guys either robbing a woman or attempting to rape a woman in 80s and 90s films i mean you've got robocop that takes the piss
1: out of that kind of thing of course yeah but um there's it's more hair down there yeah <laughs> as um... the line is by the way, have you seen that Robocop remake, uh, scene 26 or whatever it's called, where they remake the, right, okay, for anybody that hasn't seen this, this is something that you 100% need to find (laughs) online and there was a remake of Robocop where loads of different filmmakers were given specific scenes to remake and they put it together as a you know a giant hole and one of them one of the scenes was that whole rape scene the near rape scene before Robocop turns up and shoots a guy in the dick <laughs> now, now in the film that's where the scene ends in this remake it's really where the scene takes off as <laughs> more people with more women turn up and <laughs> Robocop just starts shooting everybody in the dick <laughs> And then suddenly he turns around and there's like tens of people with the pants down, all like running towards him, all (laughs) trying to rape a woman. And he just starts shooting every single one of them in the dick. And for a while, it's just a Robocop theme to (laughs) very graphic depictions of dicks being shot and exploding. And it is really one of the best things that I've ever seen. Everybody needs to see it. It's called something like RoboCop: My Remake or something like that. Yeah, and yeah, it's obviously something that's been
0: um, homaged in in the last decade, at least by uh, Twenty One Drum Street as well. So, <laughs> yes, yeah, one hundred percent. This definitely seems to be something, and I think, in a way, those early two thousands films they are transitional because they do contain elements that would be built upon in later films, but also elements that are kind of like the end of the road for that kind of format yeah and yeah the spider-man stuff and the x-men films uh, are are kind of those transitional films yeah and then you get obviously those odd ones out like daredevil which are just stuck in 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 another decade entirely so
1: i mean it, it does beg the question as well when you do approach this film specifically i would say that the scene doesn't really stick out within the gotham that burton presents it more so sticks out as a part like as a weird genre trope of the time Mm, yeah yeah but i feel like um, burton's film is less i mean i say less geared towards children i mean it was 100 percent geared towards children in terms of marketing toys and that type of thing but also like over here it was a 15 anyway yeah it was yeah i mean i know it was on the cusp of when we started to crack down on having toys from 15 films and above being marketed towards little kids but it was still just just good enough to get the toys and the happy meals yeah but i would say because of its more adult themes anyway it got away with those type of scenes whereas in spider-man it really sticks out i know that on the face of it they would always say oh it's just a robbery but we know what the connotations are of that scene what what's implied mm. by yeah, their yeah. actions you know when we see four male robbers attack a woman in an alley we know they're not really after her purse mm spider-man is really the end of that that's when you, those scenes started to go away but yeah, in, the, in yeah. the 90s and noughties they seem to be full of these type of scenes yeah
0: and falling on from that i mean we can extend that into the character of the the penguin and him yeah. being some sort of like sex pest that's what i meant by more adult themes there's many inappropriate lines in this film he's
1: truly a sleazeball oh really Is he's yeah. really sleazy I do remember at one point there is some sort of fish-related pun. Oh, yeah, I've got it here, yeah. It's the French flipper trick.
0: Oh, that's it, yes. Yeah, it's when he's running for mayor, and it's like, (laughs) have a button. There are some things in there that I'm like, even in a PG-13 film, which this was, in the States, that are very, very borderline. I'm
1: glad he didn't say something like, thumb in the pink, dorsal fin in the stink. Oh, man.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's the other thing as well. Christopher Walken definitely says unlimited
1: poontang in the film <laughs> how, yeah. how have i not that's it that exactly sounds like the type of line that would speak to me and i've not picked up on it once <laughs> Yeah, it's around the same place. It's in that mare scene
0: where he bites the guy in the nose. I'd never really heard it before. I've always thought they just said unlimited power. And no, no, really... no. I actually wrote after this, it's uh, in full on walkin' mode. So it's the way that yeah. he says it. He kind of almost like cheekily slips it in there, but you, it, where yeah. it's almost like a blink and you'll miss it reference. But he genuinely says unlimited poontang. Oh, mate, that says everything about yeah. this film. Yeah. It does beg the question is this a film for kids? No, absolutely not. And I don't think Tim Burton intended it to be. Like You can generally tell that there's a really uneasy relationship between him and the studio. And yeah. I, I don't know why the studio did what they did because they basically, to try and get him back to do the sequel, said, you can do whatever you want. And then when he mm-hmm. does whatever he wants, they, uh, they cry foul. And then obviously it, get, it becomes a situation afterwards where they don't actually want him to make another batman movie so um <laughs> it's like what happened was there yeah. some sort of change in um in the top people i don't know whether there was mm. but whether there was some kind of transition going on somewhere because it feels very odd that they would ask him to do a tim burton film he delivers a tim burton film and then they don't like it
1: yeah and it's not like batman was particularly different in terms of its approach as well because that over here was a 15 as yeah, well yeah. Yeah, And I think you know the majority of that is due to once more Batman's cold-bloodedness and Jack Nicholson's portrayal of the Joker. But even so, I still think, for some reason, looking at the world presented in Batman and going from that film to this film, I do feel like there is a sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark-Temple of Doom relationship between the two films. Oh
0: yeah, definitely, yeah. Even down to its, yeah, like, The Temple of Doom has a very soundstagey stagey yes, feel yeah, as well. That's very, yeah.
1: like, claustrophobic, very
0: much like this film is. They do actually have quite a lot in common with each other. You could argue that Batman Forever
1: is the last crusade, but uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say as well, much like Temple of Doom, Batman Returns certainly has its fan base as well. Yeah, yeah. It certainly has a very strong fan base, considering that it is a film that came out at the time, and we'll go into this later with the stats and facts, but it's a film that came out at the time and didn't perform as well as the original. It wasn't the type of film that people thought it was going to be.
0: Yeah, that's, I think also as well, that is also a film that I really like. I mean, there's a couple of things that I could do without, but that is also a film that has a very static plot. Mm Mm-hmm. It revolves around that temple so much in the way that this film revolves around its square. Yes, that the narrative doesn't really propel as so much as it's like an extended runaround. You've got the situation, Mm -hmm. and everything revolves around this, and then things get resolved at the end. But then in the middle, it's like you're stuck in this situation. Yeah, it's very different to like either Batman or Raiders of the Lost Ark, where it's definitely a, a much more flowing narrative
1: going mm-hmm. from one thing to the other yeah they are very static in that way the films that bookend temple of doom they feel more of an adventure because there's that sense of uh globe trotting there's that yeah. sense that yeah, indiana yeah. jones is traveling through a story whereas yeah. in this one it feels like he's stuck rooted in a story kind of thing mm. He can't can't break free of it yeah Definitely. And I would say that this film certainly has that feeling as well, where everybody feels rooted to this very small space <laughs> within Gotham City. They do make good use of it. And it is a great yeah, set. But
0: I think with returns, they really upped the ante in uh, making Gotham City feel closed in and oppressive. Yes they really double down on that in this film. Like they, in the films either side, Gotham is incredibly stylized. And, you know, the same goes for into how they depict Gotham in Forever as well. But yeah. this one especially is doubling down on that kind of fascist imagery.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And uh, one thing that we haven't actually spoke about so far is the music. Yeah, And that is a point that we really should make because the music yeah. is very much, you know, like... Steven Spielberg said in regards to Jaws that the the, uh, the soundtrack from John Williams is 50% of why that film works. I yeah, think yeah. these Batman films, the music is 50% of why these films work as well. And they become so iconic for this character that, I mean, do you remember when Batman Begins came out? And even with Hans Zimmer, like a safe pair of hands like Hans Zimmer, <laughs> nobody thought that he would be able to escape that shadow. Mm. And he did something completely different, which was the way forward to go, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. But oh my God, is this this is still the theme for Batman in my mind? Yeah.
0: I mean, to be honest, I don't think Handsome completely got out of its shadow until the Dark Knight. Anyway, like, I don't. Oh like, yeah, the, yeah. The Batman Begins score is good, but it's not as good as the Dark Knight score. Yeah. And I think that's where that the the style of that really came into its own. Uh, Whereas Mm -hmm. I feel like Batman Begins, it still sort of lives in the shadow of the the initial Batman film series. Mm. And the same thing goes like, yes, like when you talk about Spielberg and John Williams, they go hand in hand. And the same thing goes for Tim Burton and Danny Elfman. So
1: they are intrinsically linked to one another. Absolutely. And when I think of a Tim Burton film and the aesthetics of a Tim Burton film, I already have a sound in my mind as well. Yeah. I know what that score is and it's weird i would say as well that in the years since that tim burton's visual style has waned and his film quality has also suffered so has danny elfman's scores as well yeah i think that is the case when you've got a an identity
0: that is so well defined from the start but then there's not very much leeway yeah you know what a tim burton film is has this aesthetic but there's very little leeway outside of that aesthetic and the same yeah. goes for Danny Elfman that once you've done it a few times it does start to become very stale yeah and I get the same thing like even with Danny Elfman's Spider-Man scores I kind of feel like they are a little bit I mean they're fine but I do feel like they are workmanlike interpretations of the kind of stuff that he'd already done with
1: batman there is a story behind danny elfman's work on the spider-man films and relationship between uh, danny elfman and sam Raimi, and it is one that we've heard many times and spoke about many times on this podcast and that is one of a director falling in love with the temp track material temp track, yeah yeah. and especially with Spider-Man 2 was when that relationship started to unravel because there are some themes especially in relation to Doc Ock yeah. uh, in which they just simply bought the rights to Christopher Young's score to Hellraiser mm. and they used that as the theme for Doc Ock and Danny Elfman really struggled with that to the point that they had a massive falling out. Yeah, yeah. And he didn't come back around to working with them. Was it Oz the Great and Powerful? Yeah, he didn't do three, did he? He brought in Christopher Young instead to do three. (laughs) And and that does have some nice themes as well, but it feels like it's lacking something as well. But yeah, I would say that Danny Elfman scores for Spider Man 2. They have a couple of good themes, but yes, they do seem to be just hitting familiar beats. I think the temp track material really does fall into that. Yeah.
0: And I think, yeah, Danny Elfman is kind of a victim of his own success because it's fine sometimes when he's doing the Danny Elfman thing, but whenever he tries to do something else, like, you know, like when, I remember when we talked about Terminator Salvation, it's a little bit yeah. directionless.
1: I mean, even like scores in which he's brought on last minute, which are pure workman like like Hulk, for example, in yeah, which yeah. it was the reversal of what we've just spoken about, in which Danny Elfman was a last minute replacement for a composer and had to write this score and have it finished within a very short, like six week window. And I still think he managed to pull something out of the bag out of nothing there, managed mm. to salvage something. But I would say he does fall into the trap of just, like you say, being a bit workman-like in terms of his later scores. But yeah, this is classic Elfman though. <laughs> oh yeah, for, for all that we're saying, this is one of my favourite yeah. Elfman scores ever.
0: And that's the thing as well, Like it is a kind of a bit of a shame that the Hans Zimmer Batman music for a lot of like younger audiences has become the de facto because I kind of feel like when this is firing on, on all cylinders, I'd say it's kind of vastly superior. You can't really beat the opening titles of either this film or or Batman, yeah. There's something about those two opening titles that are just like mm-hmm. they are sort of ultimate superhero. Yeah, they're the kind of title sequences that Marvel wish they had. <laughs> yes, they are generally rather awful at doing title sequences. So, I mean, you know, some of them don't bother at all. So that and, is very true. Obviously, the Nolan films didn't do any. They had the little insignia at the start, didn't they? And then they just... Um, uh-huh. or And they have some sort of noise or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah, I think they were kind of smart in a way that they didn't try and compete with what they'd done in the earlier films.
1: But in a way, it did lead to... Um... I mean, because we speak about Batman Returns, this isn't the last time that Danny Elfman composed for the Caped Crusader. No. Um, As we do know, he was brought in as a last-minute replacement for Junkie XL on (laughs) the Justice League movie. And I think this says everything in terms of what the modern audience's demand is for film music, but there was a lot of controversy about Danny Elfman coming in and repeating the more classical scores like the John Williams theme for Superman and his original Batman theme for Batman. Mm. There was actually a controversy about that, that people were saying that's not the Batman theme and that's not the Superman theme. And that is why Junkie XL has been brought in for the Snyder Cut to bring those themes established in the DC Universe back around again. Yeah, And I think that says everything about where we are with... Maybe modern audiences is too much to say, but maybe just Snyderverse fans. <laughs> the three Snyderverse fans. Yeah. I don't think that is a good score, by the way. I don't think that, that's no, Danny Elfman's a, best score or anything like that no. or indicative of what a good Danny Elfman score is. But that little controversy there, it kind of summed something up for me that I'd been feeling about modern films anyway, about what the audience expectation was that a score did. And what's being left behind as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, to be honest, modern superhero films, i just leave them to it now. I've kind of given up. Yeah. I mean, there'll be the odd one that I'll watch, but they're so fucking formulaic and um, yeah. I, I just have very little interest in them. I mean, sorry for all those listeners who may
1: be uh, fervent fans of those, but... Um, I don't give yeah. a fuck anymore about these kind
0: of films. They really just bore me.
1: I've got no issue with people that enjoy these type of films. And, and I certainly still do watch them. I certainly, because I'll watch any old shit. <laughs> well, I, don't look, I don't look forward no, to them. It's just something in the schedule. Yeah, they're just there, aren't they, really? There's like yeah. uh, It's like wallpaper. But I would always <laughs> say that the thing that Marvel, it is like wallpaper. I yeah. would th- say that the thing like about Marvel specifically as well, in terms of the modern universe, is that I think they've always grappled with the fact that their films don't have very good scores. There yeah, are some yeah. good themes, but there are not good scores. No, that's not to say that's by and large for everything. But I think they've always grappled with that. I know there's the big Avengers theme. Da, 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 da. I know that that one. I know that's one everybody always puts forward as saying, "What about this? Isn't this iconic?" Yes, yes, it is. Okay, that one is. But this is like a what is it? Twenty films or something like that. Yeah. And you've got one theme. Brilliant. Well done. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I do struggle with that series on a soundtrack basis as well. I think it lost me some time ago. I stopped listening to them as well, Just yeah. um, even for the films that I liked. I mean, it's not It's not even that. It, there's a real lack
0: of... Um, it does crop up a little bit. I mean, I've seen most obviously in the James Gunn Guardians films and, yeah. and things like that. But there's very little of individualistic craft on display. Yeah. Especially when you pinpoint it directly to a film like this, like Batman Returns. Just thinking about the scene where the penguin visits his parents grave and how they yeah. uh how they handle the lighting on that and how stylized the lighting is. Like there's those like it's almost like theatrical in how they um have like a spotlight on the grave and, and everything. Yeah. And, like you just would not get anything like that in any kind of modern superhero film
1: well you've just touched upon something that i've actually written in my notes about this film in general and that is that it has the feeling of a third production i know that yeah, we've yeah. said it's got that soundstage feeling as well yeah. but also in the lighting yeah. as well like it has a classical feeling as yeah, well i know yeah. that it's in the way in that uh, these tim burton films are more monochromatic as well in terms of the way in which the color is presented but you when you see this film you it, despite all of its flaws you're seeing an identity on display and one more thing I just wanted to mention in regards to the score, just in terms of iconic it be- became. It's not just the themes for this film and Batman, but also Batman the animated series. Yeah. That was Saturday morning. That theme would be on TV. And I don't think there was a kid of our generation that wasn't pumped just listening to that.
0: And although they're not exactly the same, they are very much like stylistically linked to one yeah. another, Um, the animated series. It's just a shame that everything has to be so sort of Homogenized and they've 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 got to a point where like the audience demand it as well. They don't like when things change,
1: and it's very odd. We're in that place where everything lives or dies based on the social media reaction to the film. Yeah. And we spoke about it in relation to I mean, I know that we agreed that it is a film that does have its flaws, but like going back to something like The Last Jedi, which takes a hell of a lot of risks and it's essentially eviscerated by a certain community for that. We've got people asking at once in the same time for something different and something the same, and how on earth do you cater to those audiences? And when everything is so binary as well in terms of it's either the best thing ever or the worst thing ever, there's no space for individual craft. There's no space for vision in that way. Everything just kind of has to fit neatly in a package. And I don't know what David Finch has been talking about that recently. Martin Scorsese has been talking about it recently and uh, the more that the days go by the more i subscribe to that way of thinking unfortunately as well Mm. but i will say as well one day andy i i the next season you are watching a marvel film Oh no! we're gonna get on that (laughs) avengers bandwagon and we are going to uh see what all the hype is about yeah (laughs) okay so i think it's time for us to move on to the stats and facts in this very lengthy episode And to begin, let's look at the box office figures for this film. So, I do have the box office figures for both Batman Returns and Batman, just so that we can compare and contrast to a contemporary film from the time within the same series. So, I'm actually going to begin with Batman, just so that we have something to relate to. And that film had a budget of $35 million dollars. Just to put that against Batman Returns, Batman Returns more than doubled that budget. It was yeah. eighteen million million.
0: I think that was down to some of the uh, salaries, though, as well.
1: Yes, yeah, 100%. And Batman opened to a $40 million opening weekend to $251 million domestically overall and worldwide $411 million. And that was uh, 1989, I do believe. Yeah, that's, pro- that's probably at least a billion. In uh, today's figures, at least.
0: It was a massive, massive
1: film. Absolutely. And when you look at Batman Returns, it's an $80 million budget. I don't think they would have been expecting to make... Even though it's double the budget, I don't think they were going to be expecting to make double the box office, but... I certainly don't think that they were going to be thinking that they were making less than that film. And that's exactly what they did. So, although we're open to a better initial opening of $45 million for that mm. first weekend, it only made $162 million in the US overall, which is down, you know, like $90 million, $91 million mm. from the previous film. And overall, $266 million which, uh, again, that's like, in terms of the difference, 150-something, even more so than that. But, yes, um, it's quite a significant decrease. Yeah. And just to give you an idea as well of the films that Batman Returns was up against, I'm going to go through the top 10 of these films. Batman Returns did open at number one, which is expected of the series, and number two was Sister Act, number three was Patriot Games, Number four was House Sitter. Number five was Lethal Weapon 3. Number six was Far and Away. Number seven was Encino Man. Isn't that that one with uh, the the Californian Neanderthal that gets thawed out and <laughs> becomes like a surfer or a skateboarder or something like that? Maybe. I don't know. There's some nonsense. Number eight was Alien 3. Maybe soon to be featured on this show. You'll have mm-hmm. to wait till the next season to find out. Number 9 was Class Act and number 10 was a film starring everyone's favorite beaver, Basic Instinct. <laughs> I mean that's
0: um there's quite a few um big films in that list actually. There's, there's some
1: uh, stiff competition there, I think. So moving over to the reviews as well, I've been onto Rotten Tomatoes and I can say that this does have a quite solidly high percentage rate of 80%. Mm. But the the average rating is slightly lower, which is 6.68 out of 10 mm. for the average rating. And the consensus is that director Tim Burton's dark, brooding atmosphere, Michael Keaton's work as a tormented hero, and the flawless casting of Danny DeVito as the Penguin and Christopher Walken as, well, Christopher Walken, <laughs> make the sequel better than the first. That's the consensus. They, they make the statement that this sequel is better than the first. I think in some ways it is. I'm not too sure on the overall. Yeah, I think I think as a whole it's... It's not quite as satisfying an
0: experience, but I think on some of the aesthetics and everything, it's it's
1: definitely um, building on that first film. And moving on to the critic review, once more I've um, dipped into the Empire magazine well, and I've pulled up a review from Philip Thomas. And he said, despite some torturous one-liners, the shock here is the remarkable lack of any humour, as if Burton and screenwriter Daniel Waters are somehow taking the whole thing too seriously, a surprise since Burton has proved himself a highly competent director of comedy. He does, however, once again prove himself as a filmmaker of rare vision here, with the atmosphere of a city on the brink, expertly created by a man who knows exactly what he wants to say. That so many people seem prepared to listen is a, is a testament not to Warner's vast marks and machine, but to Tim Burton's uniquely twisted vision. And Philip Thomas gave it four out of five for Empire. It's a solid review. However, as firmly solid as the Rotten Tomatoes score is at 80%, the audience score is lower than this at 73%, with a 3.74 out of five average rating. Yeah, so again, I think we're seeing a... Uh, A significant drop in terms of the audience uh, appreciation of this film from from the first to the second. Mm. And yes, just to uh, clarify as well, the IMDb score for this film is a solid 7 out of 10. So how do you find those stats and facts, Andy? Where are your feelings towards them? Yeah, and I think that's just that at the end of the day, they did not make a... um,
0: This isn't a summer movie. (laughs) No. This is a winter movie. I mean... And obviously not just in aesthetics, but I just think the whole feeling of it, it doesn't have a summer vibe, it, I, it wouldn't have gone down well as a summer movie, I don't think. Yeah. Especially in America, obviously. And I think just the overall aesthetics of it, because it is full on Burton, and because you've got the extra added darkness of the Batman thing as well, I just don't think it would have gone down so well in an American summer audience anyway. Yeah. It just wouldn't have done. Cause it's just not what they would have wanted it's not the kind of thing they would have wanted to see at that particular time
1: of year oh, yeah, I, I agree with you and, and just as well to give my final thoughts on this film I do want to stress that I do think this is a very good film this is a very good film with some aspects of which do stand out as masterpiece level within the genre as well and some of these elements are the peak of the comic book genre for me but that said As mentioned earlier on, I do think it's less of the sum of its parts. Yeah, Yeah. And there are other things at play. I think there are studio ropes being pulled as well and things happening behind the scene that have just prevented this from becoming the reference film that it could have been for this genre. So I still have very much to appreciate about it. I can still see why it still has a very solid and vocal fan base as well. And yeah, I still like it a lot. It'll still be be a fixture in my house, and that theme as well will always be the Batman theme for me. I I do love... Hans Zimmer's work and James Newton Howard's work on Christopher Nolan's films they're completely different and that was the right thing to do but in terms of presenting an iconic theme this is the one that does it for me
0: yeah I think the other thing as well I don't think we mentioned it is that this film had a very short post-production period as well because it was a little bit rush released for the summer (laughs) it's crazy we keep talking about the summer and I'm wondering whether that's had some impact in terms of how the stories come out in terms of how it's been presented. Yeah. Because they probably didn't have as much time as they wanted to uh, balance all the elements out. But uh, yeah, it it will always be um, a very interesting film and um, it's definitely one to go back to even just for the technical thing. I mean, yeah, it's a strange thing. It's like everything is there. You've got the performances are great, the design, the music, the way everything's been filmed. It's just missing that last element of that brings it all together like yeah. which is a uh, a uh, flowing narrative yes yeah and that's really the only thing that it's missing and some would argue maybe that it doesn't need that but i think as a follow-up to batman i'm definitely thinking that's the thing that's really missing because yeah, Batman it is. Yeah, that...
1: had a very strong through line uh which yes this film doesn't have and a controversial through line as well but it still had one that ran through the film yeah yeah which is the, the whole Batman confronting the source of all his fear and doubt in the world, which yeah. is the Joker, the person that killed his parents in this universe. And you know what? I will say this as well, just as an aside before we wrap up. I never had an issue with that.
0: No. I no. never
1: had an issue with the Joker being the person that killed Batman's parents. It's fine. No. <laughs> I Actually, yeah. Because, I mean, growing up, I didn't really
0: know any different anyway but i always liked the um, dance with the
1: devil and the pale blue so night good
0: so good that bit and they <laughs> managed to find an actor who looked like it looked like young jack
1: nicholson it's bizarre it
0: really does yeah <laughs> They don't retcon that in Forever, do they? I always
1: get mixed up. It's been a long time since I've seen Forever. I think it's it's, it's another one that we could probably cover on the
0: show. They don't repeat that scene in Returns, but because they repeated the parents' murder scene in Forever, I get very confused. It It becomes incredibly repetitious. Yeah. I would say the initial Batman film series is probably one of the most confused out of all of the <laughs> because i think i don't even think you can even compare it to uh the x-men because they still had some sort of stylistic similarity even though the quality went up and down the batman has no continuity at all like between the, the two halves like the fact that legitimately batman and batman and robin are in the same series and they share several cast members
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, you know you still got Pat Hengel as Commissioner Gordon, yeah. and uh, Michael Goff as Michael Gough, Alfred. Yeah. What?
1: <laughs> it's just, like, bizarre. And Schumacher's films do feel like they are based in some neon-lit gay club yeah, version really are. of Gotham City. They really I mean, are. I, 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 I love the camp aesthetic of those two films. Yeah. I, can't, I, think, I think it's safe to say that we will be covering oh, um, one of those films in the next season of the show um yeah that's something to look forward to certainly okay so i think that's all we've got time for on this very lengthy christmas episode of the show and if you join us next week on popcorn digest we'll be asking how can the same thing happen to the same guy twice renny Harlan. that's why (laughs) (laughs) yes that's it we are going to be reviewing die hard 2 die harder i'm looking forward to that it's Mm -hmm. gonna be a good one we can all bask in the sight of William Sadler's ball. Oh. Uh, you know what I'd like to see with
0: the with the Die Hards? Is that um is that middle Christmas in between Die Hard One and Die Hard Two where things <laughs> where nothing happens.
1: <laughs>
0: Cause yeah, is it like it's Die, Hard is, yeah, Die Hard One is a household. Yeah, because Die Hard 1988 Christmas. And then Die Hard 2's 1990 <laughs> Christmas. What happened in that Christmas of 1989?
1: <laughs> that, that forgotten Christmas. Yeah. Oh, don't say that because Disney will come up with some middle film TV series Bruce, or something. if, if to... you listen to this,
0: <laughs> this is that Die Hard 6 you've been waiting for. What happened yeah. in that
1: 1989? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can imagine it. They could do it like... One of those terrible Hallmark Christmas movies, yeah. where like <laughs> nothing really happens. It's just Christmas in a household. Yeah, so it's like every day. <laughs> Bruce Willis gets up and he's in his vest and he's like, "Is this it? Is this going to happen?" He could do it like all the time. Terrorists, he, he, like it's on the cusp of something happening all but the time. But nothing happens. But it just he manages him. Yeah, to it just... avoid it. <laughs> A plane oh. crashes
0: into the like into the next door's house, but just
1: misses. Yeah, and he's like, "Whoa, glad I wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> I was in the right place at the right time." <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we hope to see you then. Until then, it's bye from me, Gareth. I don't know why is that my name. <laughs> Until then, it's bye from me,
0: and it's bye from me, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Release the batcock.